I don't know a thing in this whole wide world that is worse that is worse than being alone. Interesting that Bobby led that song in light of our continued study tonight of First Thessalonians, where in chapter three, where we begin tonight in the very first verse, we find that word alone. And it is significant that we find it here. Because Paul, who is the writer, is expressing to these brethren at Thessalonica whom he loved, whom he had converted to Christ, that he was so concerned about their welfare that he was willing to be left all alone in the city of Athens, Greece, while he sent Timothy back to check on those who he loved so much. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone. There is a great deal of significance in that statement. It speaks volumes about the character of the Apostle Paul. And it teaches us a vitally important lesson about how we should unselfishly care for our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, we often say when we see therefore, we need to look to see where, what it's there for. And as we begin chapter 3 tonight in our study of 1 Thessalonians, therefore does tend to take us back. And it does take us back to what has immediately preceded in this great epistle where Paul, you remember, asked the question, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you? in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming, for you are our glory and joy. Now, therefore, because you are our glory and joy, because we anticipate that wonderful reunion with you at the judgment seat of Christ when we hear those words spoken to you by the Savior himself, well done, good and faithful servant. What a crown of rejoicing you will become for us, an added joy at the judgment to hear you approved of God. And because we anticipate that reunion, because we have that love for you that is so deep and so genuine, therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we were so eager to hear, and the we is used, I believe, editorially here. He's talking about himself. When I could no longer endure it, I had to know how you were doing since your conversion because I love you so deeply. I was willing to be left completely alone in Athens at a time when his very life could have easily been in jeopardy. Because you remember how he got to Athens, don't you? Back in Acts 17, which gives us the foundation of the establishment of the church at Thessalonica, you remember that the Jews there stirred up great turmoil and persecution because of their opposition to the gospel of Christ. And Paul was in jeopardy then for his life. And Acts 17, 14 says, Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. Silas and Timothy remained in Thessalonica. And then verse 15 of Acts 17, So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens. He had an escort that brought him to Athens. And then the verse says, And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. 
so Timothy had been with him. It seems here perhaps Silas had stayed even longer in Macedonia. But now in chapter 3 here we read that because Paul was so concerned about those brethren at Thessalonica that he was willing to send Timothy back to check on them while he remained in Athens alone. There's nothing worse in this whole wide world than being alone, loneliness, being alone, alone in a city where your very life could be jeopardized And yet, instead of saying, Timothy, I'd love to know how those brethren in Thessalonica are doing, but I sure don't want you to leave me alone here, because I'll be all alone if you leave me, and I need you here, brother. Could we have faulted Paul for that attitude? I don't think so. And yet, that was not the attitude. The attitude was, I'm so concerned about the faith of my brothers and sisters, in Thessalonica, that I thought it good to be left alone in Athens. But of course, Paul knew he was not completely alone. The most important companion he had was the Lord, of course. But obviously, human companionship can be most comforting, most encouraging, and generally, we just don't like to be without that human companionship for any length of time. Paul was willing to be without that human companionship. And so verse 2, he sent Timothy, he said, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to do what? To establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. That expression, your faith, is going to be seen time and again in this chapter we are studying tonight. And we'll talk more about the significance of that expression as we go further. But he wanted Timothy to visit them, to establish them, and to encourage them concerning their faith. To what extent, or specifically in what way? Verse 3 tells us that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. We understand the persecution that had arisen. We've already alluded to it back in Acts chapter 17. And so these brethren at Thessalonica were facing afflictions. They were facing persecution. Paul was concerned that they not be shaken by these afflictions. That word shaken occurs nowhere else in the New Testament other than right here. And it has an interesting derivation. It literally goes back to the idea of a dog wagging its tail. You know, when you come home to your dog, if you have a dog, generally, if he thinks much of you, he's going to wag his tail and, uh, and greet you in a friendly fashion. And originally, that's the idea here of this word that's translated shaken, which can also mean generally to be shaken or, or uh, to be in fear or dread of something. But literally, it goes back to the dog wagging its tail and carries the idea of, uh, of a fondness or a friendliness or even a flattery with which people seek to gain favor with other people. It's kind of interesting that that really is one way that our faith can be shaken at times. Not by persecution necessarily, that is hostile persecution, but faith can be shaken by those who would flatter us and try to tell us that you don't need to be so concerned about a specific pattern. You don't need to be so concerned about Uh, having everything just right. Why, you know, you need to be more concerned about being loving and 
open and inclusive and so forth. There can be various approaches that people take to seek to shake our faith, and sometimes it can be more of an enticement that shakes our faith to lead us away from the faith and into something that is not the faith. But at other times, of course, our faith could be shaken by persecution and affliction. And so Paul says that no one should be shaken in any way, shape, form, or fashion by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. What's he saying? The afflictions that you are suffering, you know you're appointed to this. In other words, if you are a Christian who is doing what a Christian ought to be doing, if you do it long enough, somebody is going to take that personally and react in an unkind fashion. You remember what Paul wrote elsewhere in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12? He said, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And that's very similar in thought to what he's telling the Thessalonians here. Look, you know you were appointed to this. We are all appointed to this if we are children of God. And so if we have lived very long as a Christian, perhaps a question that we need to ask ourselves is, have we ever been persecuted in any way at all? I'm not saying you have to have had someone threaten your life in order for you to qualify as one who's been persecuted. Obviously, as we've often said, persecution takes different forms. There can be verbal abuse. There can be a shunning. There can be various actions and words from people that obviously take the form of persecution, that hurt us, that discourage us, that seek to overthrow our faith. And yes, back to the dog wagging its tail, sometimes there are those who would seek to entice us by saying, look, you need to loosen up. You're just a little too straight-laced, you know, etc. And that can be a ploy that can be used. Well, that's not persecution, one might say, in the sense that it's not hurtful and harmful. Well, maybe not the approach itself, but if you buy into the approach, it'll be hurtful and harmful. If you allow anything to shake your faith. And Paul was so concerned about the faith of these brethren that he wanted to know firsthand from Timothy how they were doing, but also not just to report, but to encourage them and to establish them concerning their faith, which in of itself says what? When one is converted, one is not left at the baptistry. One has to have one's faith encouraged. One has to be established in the faith. You remember that when Paul and Barnabas were proposing the second missionary journey, they were proposing to go back and to revisit those places they had initially been in where people had been converted to Christ in order to establish them in their faith. And that is something that we must always be careful to do and to encourage because growth is vitally important. And we'll see that as we continue the study of this great third chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Then in verse 4, he writes further, For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. Now he's back to telling again why he sent 
Timothy. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith. There's your faith again, as back in verse 2. I sent to know your faith, lest by some means, some means, again, says what we've just been talking about, doesn't it? Satan doesn't use one particular approach to overthrowing our faith. He'll use any and every approach. He'll use anyone and everyone that he can possibly use to shake and to overthrow our faith. Lest by some means the tempter had tempted you. The tempter. That's an interesting expression that is used only here and over in Matthew 4 in relation to the temptation of Christ. Matthew 4 verse 3 says, Now when the tempter came to him. That's the only place other than 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 5 where that expression, the tempter, is used. Obviously it is a description of the devil. It is a description of Satan. And Paul's concern was that the tempter, indicating that obviously the work of Satan, the work of the devil, is to tempt. That is not the work of God, is it? Remember James in James 1 reminded us, let no man say when he is tempted that he is tempted by God. God cannot be tempted with evil. God does not tempt anyone. And then he describes the sinning process, James does, in James 1, 15 and following, where we are led away, enticed of our own lust, etc. And the sinning process develops and reaches its fruition, its ugly conclusion. But God has nothing to do with that temptation. Satan has everything to do with that temptation, and thus he is accurately depicted here as the tempter. But don't think that that temptation will present itself in some obvious head-on way every time. Because he is cunning, he is subtle. Oh, he is that roaring lion, but he is also that, what? That deceiver who transforms himself into an angel of light and tempts through false religion and in other ways. He'll tempt through suffering as he will tempt to use suffering to cause us to shake our, or to have our faith shaken. He will use every means and every device possible. But notice as he finishes this statement here, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and what? And our labor might be in vain. Think about that with me. And our labor might be in vain. Our labor might be in vain because by some means the tempter might have tempted you, and if you had succumbed to the temptation, then our labor would have been in vain. Why? Because by succumbing to that temptation and going back into the world, they would be in what kind of condition? A lost condition. But if Calvinism were true, Timothy could have stayed in Athens with Paul and kept him company. There would have been absolutely no reason for Paul to send Timothy to check on the brethren at Thessalonica. If once saved, always saved is a biblical doctrine, then Paul wasted his time by giving up the companionship of Timothy who could have stayed and helped him because if they are saved once and for all and cannot be tempted and labor could not be in vain then there was no point in sending him in the first place. And obviously there would have been no point in Paul writing what he did here. You know, if that tulip doctrine that we talked about and studied in a series not long ago were true, then Paul didn't need to be concerned about the brethren at Thessalonica. 
total hereditary depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the final letter in the word tulip is perseverance of the saints. If there is perseverance of the saints, and by that, that's another way of saying once saved, always saved. If that were true, then Paul's labor could not possibly have been in vain. And if someone were to contend, well, he might be saying the labor could be in vain because they never were converted in the per first place. Well, you can never make that contention. I called, I, I'm sending him to encourage you concerning your faith and to establish you. He is making it abundantly clear that Paul knows very well they had been truly converted. They were Christians. But he feared lest his labor among these Christians could be in vain if they what? If they succumbed to the temptation of the tempter and lost their souls as a result. Another of the hundreds of passages clearly teaching that once saved, always saved is a false doctrine of men and is not a biblical doctrine. But in verse 6 he writes, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and now he's where? He's at Corinth now. He's moved on to Corinth, and now Timothy is with him there, and he is expressing his joy. He says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of, here's that phrase again, your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Verse 7, therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. There it is again, by your faith. Now let me ask you this. What does he mean by your faith, your faith, your faith, and being comforted now that he knows from Timothy about your faith? What has Timothy expressed to him about their faith? That they say they believe? No. It has to do with their fidelity, their fidelity, their faithfulness. In other words, their faith that is demonstrating itself day in and day out by their lives. Not that they're professing to still be Christians, but they are demonstrating that they are still Christians by what? Obedient faith. The faith that obeys is the faith that saves. How was it that Paul could be comforted by their faith? Because their faith was showing itself by what? Their works. And that's exactly what James reminds us of. Remember, do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Faith without works is what? Dead. In verse 24 of James 2, he says, you see then that what? A man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Paul's not talking about faith alone when he says, I'm encouraged by hearing about your faith. He's not saying, I'm encouraged by hearing about your faith alone. As the denominational world contends for faith as being saving faith, that faith alone, that mental assent to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, etc., etc. No, your faith here is the same kind of faith that James tells us about that demonstrates that we are faithful by our works by our obedience. And that's the only way we can show our faith is by our works. So when he says concerning you and your faith, he's talking about their lives. And if there could be any doubt about it, look at verse 8. After saying, we were comforted concerning you by your faith, he then adds this statement, for now we live if you, what? 
Stand fast in the Lord. Your faith involves what? Standing fast in the Lord. If you're not standing fast in the Lord, you don't have faith. The kind of faith that Paul is talking about here. And again, verse 8 is another reminder that what? It is entirely possible for the child of God to lose his faith, to abandon his faith, and to be lost. For now we live if, that's conditional, if what? If you do what? Stand fast in the Lord. What does the very mentioning of standing fast in the Lord imply? The possibility of not standing fast in the Lord. We live, in other words, our lives are enriched by knowing that you are doing what? Standing fast in the Lord. Which clearly implies it's possible to no longer stand fast in the Lord. And listen to this, verse 9. For what thanks can we render to God for you? Are all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God. He's saying, I really don't have the words. I really don't have the words to properly express my gratitude to God for your faithfulness. Now, if you don't think that is deep, genuine love for the souls of his brothers and sisters, what a statement. I, I can't thank God adequately. In effect, he's saying, because of the joy that I feel now that I know that you are faithful to the Lord. Night and day, verse 10, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. He would have loved to have been with them and have seen them face to face. You know, what does that say, by the way, about how we should feel about the opportunities we have to see each other face to face. Doesn't it say something very important about how we should feel about our brothers and sisters in Christ and the opportunities we have together with our brothers and sisters in Christ on Sunday morning in Bible study and worship and then Sunday night and Wednesday night? How do we feel about that? How do we feel about the, the anticipation? Do we feel the anticipation? from week to week, about the opportunities that we have to come together and to see each other face to face and to encourage one another and to stir one another up to love and good works as the writer expressed in Hebrews 10, 24. The attitude should be that we long for those opportunities. You know, I can't imagine, can't imagine that Paul, having expressed what he's expressed here, that if he were in Thessalonica and they were meeting on Sunday morning and Sunday night, that after Paul had met with them on Sunday morning, he wouldn't have much strong desire to be back with them again on Sunday night. I saw them Sunday morning, and, you know, there are other things I can do. No, uh, we obviously know what Paul's attitude was about these brethren. An attitude of such love and concern that he was willing to be alone in Athens to send Timothy to check on their welfare. And now he says, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now, wait a minute. He's just expressed time and again how encouraged he is about their faith and the good report that he's received. And now he wants to see them face to face so that he can perfect what is lacking in their faith. What does that tell us? 
that we should constantly be striving to grow in our faith and in every other characteristic of the Christian life, that we take nothing for granted, that we don't rest on our laurels, so to speak, that we do not find ourselves content with a nominal approach to Christianity because there is no such thing in terms of Christianity that's pleasing to God. What pleases God is an ever-growing faith, an ever-intensifying love, a greater gratitude every day that we live for the God of heaven who has made possible the spiritual blessings which are ours in Jesus Christ. And he's going to get to that in just a moment. And so verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. I want to see you, he says. I'd love to see you right now. And I'm praying that that God will allow that, that the Lord Jesus Christ in their providence will direct my way to you. And they did. It took a few years from this time of writing this first epistle that Paul ever wrote in A.D. 52 or 53. It was a few years later before we read over in Acts chapter 20 that he was able to fulfill that dream. He did get an answer to that prayer. But it was a few years before it occurred, which again reminds us that God doesn't answer prayers every time in an overnight fashion. And sometimes he says wait, and sometimes he says no, but he always hears and always answers the prayer of the faithful in accordance with his will. And ultimately Paul was able to see them again face to face. And now verses 12 and 13. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. Well, I guarantee you, if they loved him as much as he loved them, they would love him deeply, wouldn't they? But notice this again. We talked about a growing faith. What about an increasing love? The Lord make you increase and abound in love. Increase, that's a superlative. Abound, another superlative in love. Increase and abound in love to one another. But not just to one another. And to all. And to all. Just as we do to you. There's more that he'll write about the brotherly love in verses 9 through 12 of the next chapter, which we will study the Lord willing in the future, in this series, and the influence that it has outside the body of Christ. When those outside the body of Christ see the love that we have for one another, then that has a tremendously powerful effect on right-thinking people when they see that bond and that relationship that is ours. And what about the love that we show to those outside the body of Christ? Does that not also demonstrate to them that truly Christians are different? And that agape love, that highest form of love, is a love that we're to have for all. And if we will set our minds on increasing our faith and growing in our faith every day and increasing and abounding in love to one another and to all, we will be on the road to what Paul says is the end or the purpose. And what is it? So that he may establish your hearts blameless 
in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. That's the goal for every one of us who is a child of God, or it should be, it must be. The goal to stand before God and Christ blameless. Not sinless in the sense that we never sin. As we live the Christian life, we do. But we can be blameless because of the sinless life that was lived and the death that was died by the sinless Son of God. And through Him, we can be blameless and holy and have the anticipation that Paul expressed in the previous chapter of that great reunion where we stand before God, approved of God in Christ in the judgment when He comes again with all His saints. We're given some information about the second coming of Christ, but obviously not a great deal of detail. We know that we don't know when it's going to happen. We know that he is going to come rendering vengeance to those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of Christ. It's mentioned that he'll come with his angels, that he'll bring with him those who sleep in Christ, as we'll see from the next chapter of 1 Thessalonians. But this word saints, with which we conclude our study tonight, could include both of those groups. Because the word saint here that's translated saint is simply the word for holy ones. And the angels are often called holy ones. But we're holy and blameless as saints in the Lord now, not sinless, but blameless. And it may very well be that both groups are included here. Whatever the case, we know that when he comes, when he comes, whether we're dead or alive at that time, if we're dead, we'll be raised, have that new body, that transformed body, and that we'll meet him in the air, and that we shall ever be with the Lord, if indeed we have applied ourselves to those things that will cause us to be blameless and holy at his coming. Tonight, as we close our study, we ask, are you in that blameless and holy condition tonight? If you're not a child of God, having obeyed the gospel through a belief in Jesus that leads you to repent of your sin, confess him as the Christ, and be buried with him in baptism, you are not blameless, but blameable. And yet that can change if you will render obedience to the gospel. If you've done that, but you know tonight that your life does not reflect a faithful life, and that your faith has been shaken by whatever circumstance or circumstances, by whatever temptation or struggle or whatever it is, but nonetheless you know full well that you are no longer among the blameless and the holy. You can be again if you'll simply come home in repentance to your first love and then increase and abound in that love again as you apply yourself to the things that will enable you to stand before him approved in the judgment. If you need to do that in coming home to your first love, we plead with you to do it now. As we stand to sing to encourage you, will you come?